So here we are in the verses that we looked at last week, and I think John mentioned that we'll be just sort of camped out here for at least um, obviously today and, and next week as well. And I want to remind you that verse 16 of chapter 5 brought us to the, the application uh, portion of the letter. So up until this point, everything uh, has been uh, doctrinal, it's been instructive, it's been corrective. Uh, Paul is setting the record straight with the Galatians. He's uh, refuting the, the false teaching that they've uh, been influenced by and just reestablishing them in the truth of the gospel. And so having done that, uh, he, he now comes to the, the practical application. So, so based upon all of these truths that have been reestablished, this now is uh, how you're to respond. And we looked at uh, last time the exhortation to, to walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So um, we want to carry on from that. And today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the flesh. We're going to look at the kingdom of God. And we're going to also look at the cross and see how all of these things uh, are tied together. But let me just remind you that, that what Paul really established in those uh, chapters prior to verse 16, he, he just brought them back to the fact that, that our relationship with God is not uh, a legal relationship. It didn't begin that way. It, it's not carried on that way. Our relationship with God is based upon grace and it is manifested on our part uh, by love for God and love for one another. And it is uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And since we are born of the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit and uh, filled with the Spirit, what Paul is reminding them is, you know, you're, you now have a, a new life. It's the life of the Spirit. It's a life in the Spirit. And so, you know, their tendency was to drift back into this, or they'd never personally been there, but they, they were drifting into this legalistic thing, uh, trying to bring in the, the law of Moses and trying to do their best to, to keep certain aspects of it. Paul says, no, 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 this is not the Christian life. The Christian life is the life of the spirit. And so he's, he's gonna continue through the remainder of this epistle now to, to bring us back to the person and the work of the Spirit. Now, let me just remind us that when we're talking about the Spirit, in verse 16, as we again uh, referred to previously, uh, he says, I say then walk in the Spirit. Remember, he's talking about a person. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about uh, the third person in the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit is the one through whom we are to now live out our Christian life. So we're not uh, left to do this ourselves, but we are actually uh, empowered by the Spirit to do it. But remember, Paul also told us that there's a battle that's taking place. And it's the battle between the flesh, which is our old nature, and the Spirit. 
And the Spirit has certain desires and things that He uh, longs for us to do, and yet our flesh is opposing that, resisting that, and so there's this battle that, that takes place. But Paul tells us that we can have the victory if we walk in the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, in verses 19 through 21, he gives us um, a clear picture of what he's talking about when he's talking about the flesh. So he says, the, for the flesh lust against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. But now in verse, uh, verse 19, he, he describes for us exactly what he's talking about so nobody uh, misunderstand him, misunderstands him. So as you remember in the reading there, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, and then he goes through that, that list that we read there. Now we read today from the New King James Version. I want to read you that same list and I want to read it from uh, two other translations and then there's some clarification that we need to make as we, um, as we look at it for a moment. So let me read to you from the NIV, the New International Version. And this is how the NIV reads. It says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies. An orgy here is a reference to uh, drinking parties, that something that was common in those days. Now, let me read one more translation. This is from what's called the Moffat translation. And I just want us to get the full picture of everything he's talking about here. So Moffat translation reads, now the deeds of the flesh are quite clear, such as sexual vice, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, magic, quarrels, dissension, jealousy, temper fits, rivalry, factions, party spirits, envy, murder, drinking bouts, and carousing. So these are, he says, the works of the flesh. This is human nature. That's what Paul is saying here. This isn't some... Uh, you know, horribly wicked person that he's uh, isolating that you can only find a few of them here and there. Paul is basically saying this is, this is the flesh. This is human nature. Notice he says, and the such like. So this is not an exhaustive list. It's not complete. It's not everything that could be put down. Uh, but it gives you the general picture. This is our condition by nature. So when he says that the flesh is warring against the spirit, this is the kind of thing that he's talking about. Now, lest you think that maybe that's not why, right, you know, you might say, well, you know, come on, I, I, I don't feel like I'm that way. Uh, but the fact of the matter is this, is, this is who we are in our hearts. Jesus, he told us the same thing. Jesus said that out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, blasphemies. Uh, Jesus said the same thing. The, the Lord said this through the prophet, Jeremiah. He said that the heart 
is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or incurably sick. And the heart is not a reference to the physical organ in your body. It's a, it's a reference to the core of who you are as a human being and who I am as a human being. And this, the, the biblical teaching is that we are sinners to the very core. And that all of these things, although we might not uh, engage in all of the things here, we certainly engage in some of the things here. This is, this is the condition of the flesh. Now, there, there are two things that I wanted to give sort of special attention to that he mentions here, because these are two very um, relevant things for us right now. Uh, not to say that they're the only re- relevant things, but he mentions sexual immorality and also sorcery. So let's just look at those two for a moment. So sexual immorality is the translation of a Greek word that is pronounced porneia. And the, the Greek word porneia is uh, it's a, kind of an all-inclusive term. And it, it just covers the gamut of sexual things that God prohibits. And the question then would be, well, you know, what, what are those things? And we could go on with a long list, but I think the, the easier way to understand what Pornea is referring to is to understand what God allows sexually, and then to know that Pornea is basically everything outside of that boundary. So what does God uh, allow for sexually? And this is not a sex talk, but, you know, just to say, uh, re- let's remember, you know, God created us as sexual beings. So it, it wasn't that God uh, didn't intend for us to have sexual relationships. He did. It's part of who we are. Uh, what God did not intend is that we make this our identity, that this becomes everything that we are. That's uh, the perversion of it. But, but here's what God intends for sexual experience, the sexual relationship. And it is that the sexual relationship is to be um, experienced and enjoyed by a man and a woman who are married to one another. That's the biblical picture of uh, divinely approved sex. A man and a woman who are married to each other can have all the sex they want as often as they want it, that, that's, that's God's gift in that context. So that means everything outside of that, all other sexual behavior outside of that covenant relationship between a man and a woman is prohibited by God. So that's what Paul's talking about when he refers here to uh, sexual immorality. And then secondly, notice in, in the, the passage that we read together, there's the reference to sorcery. But maybe you noticed in the, in the NIV and in the Moffat translation, that word sorcery in the NIV is translated witchcraft, and in the Moffat translation, it is uh, magic. The Greek word is a word that we would not necessarily associate with witchcraft, sorcery, sorcery or magic we would associate the Greek word with illicit drug use. The Greek word is pharmakia. And if you just think for a moment, what does that sound like? Well, that sounds like the pharmaceutical industry. 
And that's exactly what uh, the Greek word means, especially in our context. That's where we get our word pharmaceutical. But in the, the context of the, the ancient world, and also in certain places in our world today, you have this, this, this blending of these two things where with the, the witch doctors, the shamans, the, the idolatrous priest, and you know, all of the various religions, there, were, there was this combination. Drugs were always used in a, an aspect of their worship. And so that's why the word is translated sorcery or witchcraft. But in our context, of course, we would think of it more in regard to the, uh, the use of illicit drugs. And that's, that's what it's referring to. And, and I'm bringing this up for the specific reason that these are uh, issues today that are very prevalent in our culture and these are issues today that we have to recognize both with sexual immorality and with pharmacia, that these are things that God prohibits. And it doesn't really matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter uh, who's doing it or who's not doing it. It doesn't matter that, um, you know, uh, marijuana has now been legalized in the state of California. Uh, that doesn't matter. And we need to be aware of the fact that that doesn't matter. So just some clarification there. But then also, notice how all of these things are in the same category, the category of the works of the flesh. Notice that there's not, um, it, the list doesn't start with, okay, okay, here, here are the really bad sins right here. Let, let's name off, you know, the, the, the sexual immorality, the, the sorcery, uh, the murder, the drunkenness. It doesn't have that order, does it? it? They're all lumped together. And it's important for us to see that because we tend to, in our own minds at least, uh, and sometimes even in society, we, we tend to uh, categorize certain sins as worse than other sins. Now, sometimes in the, the outcome of, of committing those sins, yes, the, the outcome the consequences and so forth can, can certainly be worse. But from God's standpoint, it, it's all together. So there isn't this categorizing. When I was uh, growing up in Roman Catholicism, the, the church actually did divide sins into categories. They did it for us. There, was, there were mortal sins and there were venial sins. And the difference between the two was mainly the mortal sins would send you to hell and the venial sins would just you know, leave you in purgatory. And, but, you know, if you, if you committed a mortal sin and you didn't get to confession and, and you died in between, uh, you were in, in big trouble eternally. But, but this kind of distinction is not a distinction that the scriptures make. So everything is here. Now, as I said, what Paul is doing here is he's really just describing human beings. He's describing every one of us. Now you might say, well, look, I'm not a sorcerer. You know, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not uh, into, um, you know, any sexual uh, misbehavior or anything like that. But when you look at the list and you see 
things like selfish ambition, you see things like outburst of wrath, or you see jealousy, or you see envy, you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm guilty of those things. So again, Paul's point here, and, and this is what I, I'm getting at. It's important that we understand what he's doing and what he's not doing. What he is doing is he's describing human nature. What he's not doing is saying, These, this category of people, as he's going to go on to say, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, he's not saying this category of people, because they do this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying this category of people are the people who are outside of salvation. He's describing human beings by nature. He's describing human beings apart from the grace of God. He's describing every one of us. Now, moving from the flesh to the kingdom. And Paul says something here very important about the kingdom. Notice at the end of verse 21, he says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, first of all, Paul's writing to believers. So he's writing to people that are already in the kingdom and they're heirs of the the future fulfillment of uh, the kingdom when it will come. So he's not saying to the Galatians, hey, you're you know, if you're, if you're living like this, you're not a believer. What he's really saying to the Galatians is, this is how unbelievers live. This isn't how we live as God's people. And again, I think that's an important distinction to make. But, but I want to do two things here. I want to first of all look at uh, what he means by will not inherit the kingdom. And then I want to look at what, who he says will not inherit the kingdom. So will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, to put it in the simplest terms that we can, it means they will not go to heaven. It means they will go to hell, actually. Now, this isn't the only place that Paul says this or gives this kind of a list. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and also in Ephesians 5, we'll just look at the 1 Corinthians passage Uh, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, fornicators is the Greek word porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So notice Paul says, don't be deceived about this. Those who uh, are, are the unrighteous, they will not inherit the kingdom. Now, inherit, as I said a moment ago, I, I take it to mean will not, to simplify it, go to heaven. Will not enter the kingdom. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because there are some who say, well, inherit it's not really a reference to whether you go to heaven or not. It's, it's, it's really referring to what your position is when you're in heaven. So that theological position, which I disagree with, uh, would say that, you know, the people practicing these things, actually, they will go to heaven, but they just won't inherit the kingdom. They just won't have a, a sort of a, a place of real priority or blessing. Um, and, and, you know, that sort of 
mentality is the man, mentality that just doesn't want to see anybody that's going to ultimately miss out on heaven. It's called universalism. It's called, uh, it's the idea that, that in the end, everybody is, is going to be saved, whether they chose to be saved or not. And the reason why this is maybe relevant right now is because of the film, The Shack, which is based on the book, The Shack, and the author of that book that has now been turned into a film is a universalist. And the message that comes across in the book as well as in the film is that in the end, you know, everybody, it's, it's going to be okay. Uh, Jesus died to save everybody. Everybody's going to eventually get there. You might not inherit the kingdom, but you will, you will get to heaven. But as I said, that is... I think unsupportable. I think Paul uses the term inherit the kingdom uh, as synonymous for entering into heaven. So, but who does he say will not inherit the kingdom? Notice in verse 21, and this is very important to understand. He says, those who practice such things. Those who practice such things. I want you to note, he doesn't say those who commit such things, but he says those who practice. And this is an important distinction. Because what Paul is talking about here, again, he's describing the unbeliever. He's describing all of us by nature. He's describing how we live apart from Christ and the grace of God. And how did we live? Well, we practiced these things. This was our way of life. That's what it means to practice these things. It is Paul's way of talking about a lifestyle. This is a lifestyle that he's referring to. He's not talking about uh, a person who uh, stumbles and falls into these things on occasion. He's talking about someone who lives here. This is their life. This is where they are. This is their... Um, this, this is their habitual uh, behavior. And I can say, and probably some of you can as well, that I know this by experience. This is where I used to live. I used to live in that realm of the flesh where these things here that he mentions are things that I engaged in. And quite frankly, this is just my way of life and I never really thought much about it. I mean, occasionally I might've felt bad if I really you know, hurt somebody in the process or something. Occasionally I felt bad, not always, but, um, you know, I, I wasn't fighting against it. I wasn't thinking that I shouldn't be doing it. I was just living life and this is what my life looked like. And this is pretty much the way the world is, isn't it? When you look around us today, you know what we're experiencing today? We're experiencing today in our culture, uh, kind of just an unbridling of the flesh, you know, over the, the years and, and over even the, you know, the, the history of our country, um, this kind of stuff that is now becoming very prevalent and very much uh, just the way it is, it's not that the current generation of people are more sinful than previous generations of people. It's simply that the restraints that once were upon the culture are being removed. And so as the restraints are removed, we're just seeing what's really inside of people coming out. 
And so, you know, I, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I was listening to a report yesterday. It was pretty fascinating where, where Hollywood and particularly Disney, they're talking about making new films for a new generation of children who are not like the children in previous generations. And what they're saying about the new generation of children is that they have grown up much quicker and they attribute it to the influence of the internet. So kids, little kids on the internet are seeing and engaging in things that, that smaller children did not do in past generations, uh, which is growing them up faster. That's their language. Uh, the truth is it's corrupting them more quickly. That's really what's going on. So, so this is what we see happening. So again, it's not that it's a more sinful generation than there's ever been. It's just there's less restraint than there's ever been. So this is what's always been in the human heart. It's just bubbling over uh, the more the restraints are removed. And this isn't the first time this has happened. If you read Romans chapter one, you have a very similar description given in Romans chapter one. And Romans chapter one is Paul describing the world that he lived in. It's very much like the world that we live in today. So my point was, he's talking about the way unbelievers live. And so he's reminding the Galatians that those who practice these things, those, in other words, who live in the flesh, those who <coughs> live in the flesh are by definition, those who are not uh, the children of God and heirs of the kingdom. Of course, they will not inherit the kingdom. They will not enter into the kingdom. So we, in contrast to they, are citizens of God's kingdom now and heirs of the fullness of that kingdom when it comes. So what Paul is saying is we are not to live like those who will not inherit the kingdom. See, we live differently. We live differently because of the work of Christ, because of the work of the Spirit. This is how we used to live, but we no longer live this way. Now, let me just give a quick reminder in case it's necessary. Um, God's standard hasn't changed. God's standard hasn't changed, nor will it change. God's standard is forever fixed. So going back to the things that we talked about, going back to sexual immorality. What God says about sex is the, the truth about sex. What the culture says about sex is not necessarily the truth. And I can say with confidence what our culture says about sex is not true at all. What God says about sex is true. And it doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what Hollywood says. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. None of that matters when it comes down to reality, because in the end, God will have the last word, not men. And so we want to make sure, we, we, we want to make sure that we're firmly fixed on what God has said about these things and that we're living our lives in, uh, in relation to that. And, and whether that's with, with sexual issues or whether that's with um, things like uh, uh, you know, the use of drugs and alcohol and, and those kinds of things that people are consumed with these days. What God has set as a standard. And Jesus reminded us, and I think it's, it's always important to remember these words of Jesus. He said, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all things are fulfilled. 
He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, so whatever, whatever it is, the, the verdicts of the court, the legislation of the Congress, the, uh, you know, the public opinion, um, none of that has any bearing on what the truth is about these things. God created us, and he created us to live a certain way. And if we violate that, um, there are those consequences that take place. And let me just say this, and then we'll move on. Uh, this, obviously, this has application to the wider culture, but you know, it also has application in the church because what's happened today is that the, the wider culture has greatly influenced the church. So where the church is to be separate from the culture in one sense, in the, in the sense of sin, um, we see in the church today that there is a, an embracing of what's becoming the cultural norm by people who are referring to themselves as Christians and believing that they are in good standing with God regardless of their views on sexuality, regardless of their views on um, you know, drugs and those kinds of things. So we have to be careful, as Paul said to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians, and as he also says here later in Galatians 6, not to be deceived. Just because some theologian comes along and says, oh, well, you know, we understand that we've just had the wrong view of sexuality for all these centuries. Now we got the right view. I always think, well, where'd you get the right view? You got it from the culture. Oh, interesting. So God's going to tell us through the the sinful culture, how we're really supposed to live. No, it doesn't work that way. But just, just to give you an, an example, maybe you already have had these kinds of experiences, but of course, in the last election, we, uh, here in the state of California, we um, legalized marijuana. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was arrested, put in jail for possession of marijuana and put on probation but now it's, it's all good. It's cool. And here's the thing. So just this past week, one young guy, Christian guy, hey, well, you know, pot's probably okay, right? Because it's legal. I mean, you know, we, we can do that as Christians, right? It's not, it's not a problem anymore, right? Because it's legal. Wrong. It might be legal in the state of California, but it's not legal before the throne of God. It's not legal from God's standpoint. It's sorcery. It's witchcraft. It's everything that God said it is. So, so look, let's not fall into that trap of being deceived into thinking that, well, you know, because it's legalized, it's okay. And that is something that people are succumbing to. So let's not do that again. Just a quick reminder, God's standard hasn't changed. So back to our points here, coming to the third and final point, we come to the cross. And Paul in verse 24, he brings us to the cross. Now I'm intentionally skipping over verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the spirit, because we're going to consider the fruit of the Spirit at length uh, next time. Uh, although I'll come back and touch on it in a moment. But, but again, look at the end of verse 21. He says that those who practice such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So you see again, what I want you to see is that Paul is, he's, he's making a contrast between the two. There's the flesh, those who live according to the flesh. Then there's those who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Who are they? Well, that's us. The believers are the ones who have crucified the flesh. First of all, we have been crucified with Christ. Paul said that in, back in uh, chapter 2, verse 20. So we have been crucified with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says a similar thing, that we have been crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be put out of business. So here's what's happened to us. When we put our faith in Christ, Jesus died on a cross literally, right? When we put our faith in him, what happened to Jesus literally happens to us spiritually. So now we have died, we're dead to sin, but now we're alive to God through the Spirit. So they that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul, in, in Romans 8, uh, 6 through 8, uh, there's a lot of parallel between what Paul is saying there and what he's saying here to the Galatians as well. But there in uh, chapter 8, verse 9, he says this. He said it to the Romans and it is absolutely true to the Galatians and it's true to us as well. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You are not in the flesh. You see, when Paul says you are not in the flesh, what he means by that is that you are no longer that person you used to be. That's, that's really what he's saying. He's, he's referring to the fact that you have been now given a new life. You're no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, the reason that I think we need to understand this clearly is because we sometimes think wrongly that we sort of go in and out of the flesh and the spirit. You know, we, we might even use that terminology. We might even think in that way that, you know, we had a, you know, we look over the past week and we, we might even think in our own minds, you know, gosh, I had one day where I was so in the spirit. I was just in the spirit that day. And then, you know, something happened the next day and I was just in the flesh that whole day. <coughs> we think like that sometimes, but that's not really what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about those who are in the flesh are those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Those who are in their flesh are people who are not saved, basically. They're people who are in their flesh. They are living the life that Paul describes here. They are practicing these things. This is their lifestyle. That's those who are in the flesh. Paul says, you're not that. See, what Paul is pushing here for the Galatians is to remind them that they are no longer what they used to be. And since they're no longer what they used to be, they are to no longer live the way they used to live. And even though it's obvious that they were slipping in areas and, and doing some of those things that Paul talked about, he doesn't discard them as uh, unbelievers. He just simply exhorts them and reminds them of who they really are. And this is something for us that is 
important. We have to remember who we really are. You see, I've been crucified with Christ. And as uh, Paul goes on in Romans 6, 11, and he says that, that we have been crucified with Christ there in verse nine, I think it is. But then in, in verse 11, he says that we are consider, to consider that to be the case. We're to reckon it to be so is the way the King James, New King James translated, to reckon it to be so. Reckon is <coughs> an old word that means to account it to be the case. So Paul says, here in verse 24, they that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Now I want you to notice, on the one hand, he's saying we've been crucified. The, the idea is that somebody else has crucified us. But now he says they that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. The idea that we crucify ourselves and both things are true. You see, because the reality is when Christ was crucified, we were crucified with him. But now I have to apply that. So when he says, they that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, he's saying, look, this is what's happened to you. Now apply it to your life. You were crucified with Christ. Now appropriate that. Make that a reality in your own experience. How do we make it a reality in our own experience? Well, <clears throat> we make it a reality by resisting the urges of our flesh not through self-determination or the power of uh, fear of the law, but we resist that by the recognition that that no longer has authority over me because I'm dead to that, and now I'm alive in the Spirit. And so we end up falling back on the Spirit. You see, we're going to talk about this as we close today, but I'll just touch on it for just a second. The key in all of this that Paul is wanting the Galatians to understand is the reality of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God. That's the amazing thing about being a Christian. You are not just a person who's recognized that certain things are wrong and certain things are right, and you're doing your best to try to do the right thing. That's not a Christian. That's a person who is uh, under a moral obligation, but a Christian is a person who is empowered by the Spirit of God to live according to the will of God and given supernatural power through the Spirit to resist the, the urgings uh, of the flesh. Now, Paul here, and, and again, I want you to see this. Paul recognizes that believers will at times lapse into these kinds of behaviors. This is, this is a reality. And, um, you know, it, it just is the truth. Now, I, I at one time had a, a theological view that pretty much said that wasn't the truth. Pretty much said, if you were involved in any of those things that, that he listed there, then that just simply meant that you weren't a believer. But the more you live life, the more you study the scriptures, the more you realize, no, that, that's not what Paul is saying. It can't be what it's saying if you look at the text closely because <clears throat> he just mentions things like selfish ambition and he mentions factions and he mentions envy. And then in verse 26, he says, let us not be conceited, provoking one another, uh, envying one another. Paul is acknowledging that these kinds of things are present among the Galatians. 
So this is the point that I'm trying to make. When we lapse into these things, and let me say this before I finish that sentence. When we lapse into these kinds of things, and believe me, it's not that we have to, but when we do, when we, and, and let's just say, um, you know, the, the big ones, we're, we're not, you know, we haven't gone out and murdered anybody and we're not drunkards and we're not sexually immoral and all of that. Okay, we might think, oh, I'm clear. I, you know, I don't have any, what do you mean lapsing? Nobody lapses into this stuff. Well, just read the rest of the list. Envy anybody this past week? Or maybe you're living with envy towards somebody? So what am I to conclude? You're not a Christian? You're envying somebody. No. I mean, it could be. That's your way of life. But on the other hand, it might be that you've just lapsed into that. And you need to recognize that, no, this is not who we are. This is not who I am. This is who I used to be. But this is no longer who I am. And so I apply that truth. But then it comes down practically to this. You see, Paul goes on and he finally says this, speaking, you know, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says, if we live in the spirit, and the word if here probably could better be translated since, even though you can understand if in both ways, but, but the idea is since. Since we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. So you see, this is the answer. This is how I overcome. This is how, if I've lapsed into the flesh, this is how I'm brought back out of that. I need to remember, wait, no, this isn't me. This isn't who I am. Now, I talk to people all the time. And as a matter of fact, I talked to somebody just a couple days ago on the phone, calling on the radio program. And it was a woman who recognizes her weaknesses, she says, you know, I, you know I, I think I love the Lord, but I just, you know, I just keep repeating the same things over again. And basically her question was, am I a Christian? Am I, you know, am I really a child of God? How, you know, how come I keep going through this and, and all of that? And, you know, in, in just listening to her cry, it was obvious that she's a believer because she's not practicing these things. She's not saying, hey, this is who I am. I mean, look, when you, again, you look at the list of the flesh, you know, the, the, the way a person is in their natural state, they're not, not only, uh, not ashamed. Many times they're proud of this is the way they are. Well, this woman's the complete opposite. She's, she's not happy with this. She knows that these failures are, are wrong. She doesn't want to be in this place. And of course, there's then that moment where the devil comes in and just says, well, it's because you're not even saved and you can never be saved because you've been trying for so long and you just keep failing over and over again. But no, the truth of the matter is she's not practicing. She's not living in. She's not, this isn't her chosen lifestyle. This is something that struggling with. You see, the believer struggles against these things. The believer fights against these things. The believer recognizes, even in a moment of lapse, the believer recognizes this is wrong. I don't want to do this. I shouldn't be doing this. Why am I doing this again? That's an indication that a person is a believer, not an unbeliever. But are they forever bound to just keep doing it over and over again? No. That's what Paul's saying. 
No, we're not forever bound. That's not who we are. We have the power of the Spirit. And since we are in the Spirit, since we live in the realm of the Spirit now and the Spirit lives in us, he says, let us also walk in the Spirit. And you see, this is where the victory is. It's walking in the Spirit. Now, verse 16 says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? Here in verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We have the word walk twice, two different Greek words. The first, verse 16, walk is walk in the, the general sense of, as I pointed out before, it's your conduct. This is how you're to live your life, live your life in the spirit. But the Greek word here in verse 25 is a different word, and it means to walk in line with. It means to line up behind. It means to walk in step with. And Paul is saying this, since we live in the spirit, let us also walk in step with the spirit. You see, you can live in the spirit, but not walk in step with the spirit. And then what happens? You end up doing the things that are, they look more like the things of the flesh than the spirit. But God's plan for us is to have victory over those things. So we are to walk in the Spirit. We're to walk in the steps of the Spirit. And this brings me around to what I was saying. Listen, the Holy Spirit is who we're talking about here. We're not talking about an idea. We're not talking about some some force out there. We are talking about a person. We're talking about a person that will help you to live the way God wants you to live. Have you ever had the desire, the thought, the regret that you didn't live at the time of Jesus? Have you ever had the thought like, man, I wish I could have just been with Jesus. If I was with Jesus, I wouldn't be living like this because he would have helped me not to do this. You ever feel like that? Oh, those lucky apostles back then, they got to be with the Lord and you know, he, he helped them to just you know, live the right way. Well, guess what? Don't Look back with envy on that because you actually have something better than they had. You actually have something better. Jesus said to them, he said, as, as he was telling them about the fact that he was leaving, he said, he said, I'm leaving, but he said, it's actually to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. Or he didn't say the Holy Spirit. <coughs> At that point, he said the paracletus won't come. And the paracletus is... The, the term that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit, the paracletus is one who comes alongside to help. See, the Holy Spirit has been sent by God to empower us to live the way God calls us to live. So as I started, we've been born of the Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. And so... Let us walk in the Spirit. Let us walk in line with the Spirit. Let us let the Spirit lead. Let us respond to the, the Word of God because the Word of God, of course, is breathed by the Spirit of God. So we look at God's Word and we say, God, I want to live this way. And Lord, I know you're going to help me to do this. And we respond to the promptings of the Spirit and the conviction of the Spirit. And when my flesh rises up, 
and those works of the flesh want to manifest themselves, and the Spirit says no. We submit to the Spirit. We go with the Spirit. We line up behind the Spirit. And as we do that, we learn to walk in victory. We learn to walk in victory. You know, in case you haven't noticed, spiritual perfection does not come overnight. The truth of the matter is it doesn't come in this lifetime. The truth of the matter is spiritual perfection will never come until we have all shed these bodies and put on that new body. But in the meantime, we're in this process where God wants us to be growing. And Jesus, as he put it this way, you shall know the truth and the truth shall progressively set you free. That's what God is wanting to do. And so as we yield to the spirit, now, as I look at these works of the flesh, I'll just be very candid here. As I look at these things, it's just like, yeah, I don't have a problem with most of the stuff on the list here, but I can't say I don't have a problem with any of it. And I've been a Christian for a long time. So what does that mean? That means that I have to just keep going back to the same thing over and over again. Since I uh, live in the spirit, I have to walk in the spirit and I have to make those choices and you have to make those choices. But know this, the spirit of God is there to help us to do what we can't do. The flesh comes and says, you got to do this. This is who you are. But the spirit says, no, no, this is not who you are. That person is dead. That person was crucified. And you say, right, yes, that person was crucified. I am crucified with Christ. And now I'm going to crucify this. I'm not going to yield to it. I'm going to yield to the spirit. And so that is what the apostle wants the Galatians to know. It's not about your determination to keep the rules. It's about the power of the living God dwelling in you that will give you the victory as you walk in the spirit, as you walk in step, letting the spirit lead your life. So Lord, we thank you that that is the truth. Lord, that we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Lord, that we have been born of the spirit and that we're indwelt by the spirit. And Lord, help us to nourish our lives spiritually so that we can more easily sense the, pro <coughs> the <coughs> promptings of the Spirit. And Lord, that we can know that victory that you intend for us. So Lord, work that in us, we pray. And Lord, I, I would pray for anyone that's with us today. Maybe there's somebody here, maybe there's somebody listening who um, they would just say, well, you know, that list of the works of the flesh, that's me, that's my life. But maybe they've also come to recognize that that is not the right way to live. And so, Lord, help them to know that you are the one that will deliver them from that, that they might open their hearts and receive you. So, Lord, fill us with your spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.